0: Hey, guys, welcome to the show. Today, I have a very special guest, Sam Albury. He has written several books, including Is God Anti-Gay? Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? Which we're going to be talking about today. And his most recent book is called What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, which hopefully we'll get to on, in, in another episode. But welcome, Sam.
1: Good to be with you. Thanks for having me.
0: So today I want to focus on why does God care about who you, who I sleep with. And I know you don't like the dangling preposition, but uh, we could talk about that later, but I love this book. Um, I just recently read it. It it came out, I think in, in 2020, but um, it's so great. And I I really, you know, I, I think Christians need to read this book and all of your books Uh, but Before we get into that book, let's tell us a little bit about your background, a little bit about your personal story, if you don't mind.
1: Yeah, no, very happy to. It's it's so good to see you. Thanks for having me join you today. Um, I became a Christian when I was 18, when I turned 18. Hadn't really grown up with much exposure to Christianity prior to that. Um, Was also, as a teenager, very aware of same-sex attraction. Um, so just before I became a Christian, I remember thinking, and the language I would have thought with at the time was I would have been thinking I'm gay. When I leave home and go to university, this can be something I explore and run with and no one at home will ever need to know about it. So I was planning to go to university and to begin exploring same-sex relationships and that kind of thing. Uh, but as I say, the Lord got to me before then became a follower of of Christ and therefore knew I needed to yield everything to him. I I knew even as a very new Christian that, that Jesus knows better than I do in every area of life and that my life is not going to be improved by keeping it apart from him. So I didn't know at that stage what Jesus had to say about sexuality, but I did know I could trust him. And therefore that whatever he did say would be okay because... It's Jesus. So the early years of my my Christian life were really trying to understand the kind of Bible's teaching on sexuality and then obviously think through what that meant for me personally and Mm -hmm. to to begin learning to be a disciple of Christ in in these kinds of areas.
0: And so were were your kind of contemporaries at that time when you were that age, were they kind of pressuring you in any way to be who you are or or you weren't even uh, you know you didn't even express this to them I, I, i'm assuming
1: yeah, they had no idea um so no I mean this was the early 90s and um in southern england it was very clear to me that this would not be a good thing for other people to be aware of um i'd seen people in my high school being bullied for being gay um and so yeah I, I was I was not remotely planning to tell anyone about this until I got to university. Um, so no there was no there's no pressure from that point of view. The cultural pressure was in the opposite direction at that point.
0: Yeah and so what in terms of the cultural pressure, was there ever a time where you were just kind of like, maybe this is all maybe I should just give in to this and not you know follow the biblical sexual ethic or was there a time where you were kind of pressured?
1: <clears throat> not really no i i i think the lord's kindness to me was i came to faith and i don't know the best way of of articulating this but god gave me the gift of faith um, because I, I just knew from the very beginning i can trust jesus and so once it was clear to me what jesus has to say on this i never it never occurred to me to push back on him or to look over my shoulder and see if there were other options out there i just knew that jesus way was going to be the best way for me um it wasn't always easy to to live in the light of that um but i i never found the sort of more progressive arguments from different parts of the christian world for same-sex relationships i just never found them remotely compelling um, there have been times when my heart has longed for some kind of romantic intimacy that kind of thing for sure but I've never felt the kind of cultural pressure that I'm sure so many people feel today that I've got to act on this. I've got to live this out. And partly that's because I'm also aware of how in my own, in my own, the way I'm wired, I know that any same sex relationship I got into would not be healthy. Um, I know that in my own heart, it's bound up with idolatry. And so much as the temptations may still be there, I, I know that if, if, I was given those desires and they were fulfilled. I know it wouldn't be a happy ending yeah. and that, that helps as well. Um, it would be a sort of euphoric initial period followed by deep disappointment and despair. So it helps to sort of already know where that path eventually takes one. Um, so, yeah, and it's not always been easy, but it's always been clear that that's the path for me.
0: Yeah, I wish I had had that, <laughs> that gift of faith at 18. It would have spared me years and years of lots of pain and, and lots of uh, damage, you know. So um, that's amazing. Well, it's interesting that- because I,
1: I came to faith around the same time as a bunch of other guys my age did. And a lot of them were kind of lamenting, man, we we didn't really get a chance to mess around yet. You know, why do we have to become Christians now? Maybe we could have waited a few years and had some fun first. And I remember thinking, (laughs) I'm just, I'm just glad the Lord has spared me what would now cause me grief. Yes. Um, He got to me before I really had a chance to, to kind of act on those things.
0: That's amazing grace. I, I, yeah, I, I wish I, I mean, you know, God had, God knew the timing for me and everything and he's sovereign. I know that, but I, if I could go back, I, I would have loved that not to have been engaged in that life for so long. Um, so speaking of sex, why does God care about who I sleep with? Um, what it's funny because when I first became a Christian, the the first question from everyone I got was, "What about se- your? What about guys? Like, what about sex? What about your sex life? Like, is that okay?" It, that was the first question. From it wasn't the question wasn't, "What's it like to know the King of the Universe?" or Tell us. Tell me about how what it's like to know God, or what's what are some of His attributes, or what's the gospel? Like the first question everyone asked me was about my sex life. Hmm. Why is you talk about this in the book? Why is our culture so (laughs) obsessed with sex?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of reasons for that, but it, it I think one of the reasons is we've we've officially dropped our traditional concepts of transcendence we've we've kind of officially done away with religion um and the human body that the human soul is made for transcendence and so i think we're trying to find that transcendence within the the little tiny secular framework we've left ourselves with and the closest candidate for what feels like it could be that is sex um and you know in one sense there's there's truth to that sex in the biblical account is meant to point to something that is Ultimate and beyond us and eternal, um, but we've we've kind of misread the sign, uh, and we've mistaken the sign for the reality, and so we're we're looking. I think, I think we're looking within sexual fulfillment for a sense of completion and wholeness and authenticity and self-expression, and all of those things. So we've we've freighted it with that kind of baggage of expectation and meaning, um, which means that people are more miserable and having less sex. Right. Uh, which is, is the kind of irony of all of this. Um so I think that's at least part of what's going on.
0: Yeah. And we you know the, the sexual revolution of the 1960s ushered in this kind of uh this this idea, this notion of we can have sex with whomever, whenever, wherever and there's no, you know, there's no consequences. It's all free love, blah, blah, blah. But then suddenly we got, you know, the Me Too movement happened. So, and you talk about this in the book. And how did, how did the Me Too movement change things in terms of the way the culture looks at sex?
1: Yeah, I think it's been really instructive for us. There's so much in what's happened with and in the, as a result of the Me Too movement that I find really interesting as a Christian. Um, It it's shown us that, although we've always said the only thing that matters is that it's between two consenting adults, it turns out we didn't believe in consent as much as we said we did. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think part of the reason for that is if if you keep saying to someone, hey, this is the key to fulfilment, this is the key to to wholeness and all the rest of it, it's very hard to to give with one hand what you're then trying to take away with the other hand by saying, oh, it has to be consensual. Because... By the time you've built it up that much, if if someone is feeling this is the key to my fulfillment, actually consent might be a barrier to that. Um, for the Harvey Weinstein's of this world and the, the the people in that kind of powerful situation, they're not going to worry about consent when fulfillment is is on the line. Um, so that that's one part that I I think we need to tease out culturally and, and think actually do we mean what we say by this and. Mm-hmm. Is, is that high view of consent compatible with all this other stuff we're saying about you have to be sexually fulfilled for your life to be worth living? The other thing I think the Me Too movement is is showing us is that we also don't really believe it when we say it's just sex, it's just biology, it's just the exchange of fluids, it doesn't have to mean anything. Can you guys stop making a big deal about this? Because the abuse of it is so catastrophic mm-hmm. And so deep and so scarring precisely because the right use of it is meant to be so profound and meaningful. So and what, tell, we, and what, is,
0: what is the right use of it, just so we're clear on on this?
1: Yeah, so obviously, yeah, I mean, in, within the scriptures, God's design for sexual intimacy is to be between a man and a woman in within the covenant of marriage. And in the in the wider biblical story of things, Marriage and the sexual intimacy within marriage is meant to be a picture of the of the union between heaven and earth that we find in Christ. That's the sort of the big picture thinking of the Bible and all of this. Um, so within within marriage, sex is meant to be a way of, in the language of Jesus, two people becoming one flesh. I mean, that, it's, it's that it is that profound, um, and it's meant to be a, a union that is exclusive and lifelong um, and involving the whole person so it's not merely you know a bodily act it it seems to be expressive of the giving of one's entire self to someone else irreversibly um, it is meant to convey all of that and we we culturally have been doing this sort of nudge nudge wink wink up. it just just it's just biology because it it lets us off the hook of having to think through consequences and implications. But I think again the Me Too movement has has shown us that we've we've actually been lying about that this whole time. We, we know better than that. Um, if the abuse of it is so profoundly devastating, it's precisely because the right use is, is far more than biology. Um, this is, sexual abuse is not like it's not like grazing your knee, it's not like breaking your arm um uh, the, the damage is far more than physical because sex is far more than physical
0: yeah and i've, and I've said this on the show before that you know for for all those years that i was living you know as a as a gay man you know i felt like i was sexually liberated but and i and i didn't realize i was actually in sexual bondage until i became a christian and and then i now when i look back on the that time i I, this actually started happening maybe a few years ago, but I started to really fully understand that that how damaging just emotionally mm-hmm. this the, the emotional scars from all of the different, you know, encounters I had and boyfriends and this and that. It was it's so scarring. And it was always <clears throat> this it was always quick pro quo. Yeah. <laughs> so I talk about it in my book as you know <laughs> Is you know, it was always this transactional thing. It's like, you know, oh, we're we're gonna be boyfriends and we're gonna live together, but you know, as long as I, you know, have a great job and you have great abs or something. You know, that was kind of the it was never said explicitly, but it was always the tacit understanding of our relationships. Yeah. It was like we all so it was you were constantly walking on eggshells, not knowing, is he gonna leave me? Is he gonna cheat on me? Which, you know, happened every single time. Um and so it's just it's it's a very damaging just on just on an emotional level it's very damaging when you're not in god's design of this covenant for life and Tim Keller talks about this where you can be naked emotionally, physically, and spiritually with another human being and not fear rejection um yeah. and so yeah it's like it's it's i didn't realize how damaging that whole experience was until. I came out of it.
1: Yeah. And I, by God's grace, never went into that. But I do know that it's liberating to be in a situation where you can, you can honestly say, I don't need to have sex. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter that much. I mean, I know. It's great in the right context, but surely true liberation is, is being able to say, actually, my, my life is going to be fine if I feel sexually fulfilled or not. It's just not that important. And I love how Jesus dethrones it. He doesn't just clarify the parameters in which it's meant to take place. He dethrones it and says, this is not the be all and end all. This is not the the key to your life going well. Um, and that that's real sexual liberation.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's uh, one of the bonuses, besides all of that, which is amazing. One of the other bonuses is, you know, my friend, whenever there was always this pressure to be in a relationship and if if I if there was a period where I wasn't in a relationship my friends would constantly be like oh we have to set you up oh you have to meet this guy yeah it was this constant pressure and and I'm so relieved now that I don't ever have to go (laughs) I don't ever have to go on another blind date in my life or a semi-blind date or whatever so that's a relief um you spoke about jesus and and he you talk about this in your book and how jesus changes our understanding about sexual immorality can you talk about that for on, on the sermon on the mount can you talk about that
1: yes yeah, so the sermon on the mount jesus i mean he's doing lots of things but um, in matthew 5 he's, he's pulling out some of the 10 commandments and showing what they really mean um and when it comes to the commandment against adultery, he's showing us this is not simply about what happens in a bedroom. It's actually about what happens in your heart. And so adultery isn't merely cheating on your spouse or, you know, getting involved with someone else's marriage. Adultery is looking lustfully at another human being. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's actually how you regard someone, how you think about them, it, it's commodifying that other person's sexuality. Um, and and turning it into something that exists for you to consume for your own pleasure and gratification, and that that is the diametric opposite of how God has designed human sexuality to work. In the right context, it's meant to be about self giving, not about other person taking. So Jesus, it's interesting, you know, contra the sort of common narrative that you know Jesus is relaxed and all of this. Um, you Christians need to loosen up. Jesus takes the Old Testament commandment and intensifies it in its application um, in a way that actually implicates every single one of us because what he's effectively saying is all of us have this sin in our hearts. And so that's the starting point. The starting point isn't the kind of purity culture, you know, logic of, hey, you start off pure, so don't, don't, you know blemish that and then ruin it forever. Jesus' starting point is, hey, we, you've got adulterous hearts. That's what the commandment was there to show you. And that's why he's come. He's He's come for spiritual and sexual sinners. Um, and elsewhere, he, he kind of clarifies that, that sexual immorality is is any sexual behavior outside of marriage. He, he uses the word porneia, which mm-hmm. is a Greek term for any sexual sin outside of marriage and says that, that is one of the things that is a sign of, of, again, our unclean hearts, that things are not right in our own interior. So Jesus is, I was, I was talking to a group of college students just yesterday about this. Um, Jesus has stuff to say on this. Jesus is not neutral. Um, Jesus is not easy. Culturally, he's very, he's very difficult on this because he's defining marriage as being between a man and a woman. He's saying, any sexual behavior outside of that context is is sinful and he's saying all of us ultimately are in the same boat because all of us are sexual sinners so it's not easy but the the kind of consolation if if we can call it that is it's it's not easy for all of us <laughs> um we we're, we're all ultimately in the same boat and there's some there's some kind of comfort in that at least
0: yeah and you mentioned the, you talk about this in the book too. Just the 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 idea of sex as self giving. Talk about that a little bit more.
1: Yeah. So again, if if um, if marriage and sexual intimacy within marriage is ultimately pointing to the kind of covenant love God has for us, um, it it's very other person centered it's not It's not the contractual arrangement you just described where hey, we're in this relationship because for now I feel like I'm getting this out of it, and the moment I cease to feel that i'm going to pull out of this relationship and move on to another one it's it's covenantal it's it's based on unconditional covenant promises um and, and sex is is meant to be a way of <laughs> uh, I think Glenn Scriven, a, a wonderful. Um, evangelist in the UK they said it in terms of, it, it's another way of restating your marriage vows. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you're fully giving yourself to this other person. In 1 um, in Corinthians 7, which is a, a place where the Apostle Paul talks about intimacy within marriage, he he just frames it in a very significant way. He, he says, and I love the way he puts this. I'm sure he, he did this deliberately. He says, a wife's body does not belong to her alone. But to her husband. And every Roman man would be going, yes, amen, this Christianity stuff sounds fantastic, we're with you. And then Paul immediately flips it and says, and likewise, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but to his wife. And every Roman man would be going, what, what did What did you just say? Um, What I love about that is Paul doesn't say, hey, your spouse's body belongs to you, so take it. He says, your body belongs to your spouse, so give it. So that the whole direction of travel here is is self giving, not other person taking, and it's it's a mutual self giving, and it reflects the, the self giving, outward moving heart of of God Himself.
0: Yeah, and you you talk about that. Speaking of uh, the first century and the Romans, you talk about the kind of the sexual. Tell, talk about this because you talk about the sexual revolution in the first century in Rome in the yeah, Roman Empire. I'm, I'm,
1: I'm borrowing that that language from Carl Harper, who is a professor of classics, I think at the University of Oklahoma, if memory serves, but he's written a wonderfully helpful book called From Shame to Sin, and basically showing how extraordinarily countercultural the Christian sexual ethic was in the Greco-Roman world. And if we're if we're very aware of how countercultural it is in our own culture, it's good to know. Okay, this is always being countercultural, and it was massively countercultural when it first came on the scene in the first century. Um,
0: especially for women,
1: especially for women. And no wonder Christianity was so popular for women because it gave them, it gave them a measure of sexual agency. Um, Paul says you are free to marry and you are free to not marry. If you're a man and if you're a woman, that, that was unheard of. Um, In the Roman world, it was your your duty to marry if you, you were a woman and you had to be pure and committed to your husband. He had no such obligations to you. And so the, the fact that Paul is calling husbands to be faithful to their wives, massively countercultural, the fact that, that there's the, the concept built into the New Testament sexual ethic of consent, again, that was a brand new idea in the Roman world. That is not something a secular person can rightfully say, well, that's, that's just obviously instinctive and obviously right, because it's not been instinctive and obviously right in most world cultures, including much of Western culture. Um, it, it's a distinctively Christian idea, the idea of consent. So this sexual ethic was extremely problematic in the Roman world, but in a way that gave so much dignity to those who were kind of often without any kind of agency or status or or dignity whatsoever.
0: Yeah, that's uh, it's pretty amazing. And you, you talk about, in the book, you talk about um, that even – if you're not a Christian, we all believe in sexual boundaries. Can you just expand on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I I don't know. I I often hear things being put this way, that, you know, we believe, we secular people believe in sexual freedom. You Christian people believe in kind of constraining and and repressing and putting these fences up and and all the rest of it. And I I just want to, I hope in a a friendly, charitable way, show that 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 really isn't the case. Everyone has boundaries. Um, the most secular progressive person still has boundaries. Uh, They still say sexual freedom provided it's between consenting adults. You know, those are boundaries. Mm -hmm. Now they may be good boundaries. I I agree with those boundaries that I don't think they're, they're sufficient on their own, but don't pretend you don't believe in boundaries because you just put some down there. Um, The question is not who's got boundaries and who doesn't. The question is, Do you have a a framework and a rationale that that properly accounts for those boundaries? um, Or are you just kind of smuggling them in under the language of sexual liberation and sexual freedom? Um, So I I just think it's disingenuous when people say, well, we believe in sexual freedom and you Christians don't. I'm thinking, you just put Harvey Weinstein in prison for a reason. You don't believe in sexual freedom.
0: And Jeffrey Epstein... (laughs) Harvey yeah. Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein. There's so many Steens, yeah, going on. <laughs>
1: Not good for the Steen community. Yes.
0: Yeah. So. <laughs> yes. And you um even I was thinking about it. when I was reading your book, I was just thinking about this new phenomenon in Hollywood that where they actually have sex sex handlers on the set of movies. Like so if there's a sex scene, there has to be a, a, a person is hired to make sure that boundaries aren't crossed on the set of the mm-hmm. of the movie that's how sensitive it's become in in hollywood oh. so there, that's an actual career a career you can have in hollywood you can be a sex handler <laughs>
1: <So>. <laughs> probably a better way of phrasing it than that but <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so i mean it's, and yeah. again I, th- I think we can say as christians that there's a reason you're realizing this has to be handled so sensitively um but it it's not just a matter of biology, it's not just a matter of physicality. Um there's there's more at stake psychologically in all of this, and you need a worldview that can account for that.
0: And you talk about the image of God and how we're we're made in the image of God in the book. And but talk about how that being having that status or having being related, uh having the image of God is related to sex.
1: Yeah, it, it means that we do have. We do have an innate dignity. Um, I'm really struck. It, it just hit me once looking at that, that text in Matthew chapter five. I just remember staring at it one day and thinking, hang on a sec. It's very obvious what Jesus is saying about the person looking lustfully. But I suddenly realized what Jesus is implying about the person being looked at. Which is that that person has a sexual dignity in the eyes of Jesus that is so precious It mustn't be violated even in the privacy of someone else's mind. Even if, say, the the woman in in the scenario Jesus gives us, even if she never knows that a man is looking at her lustfully, it still bothers Jesus. It still Mm. matters. Um, She is still being mistreated in that man's mind um, because she has dignity by virtue of being made in the image of God. So... Again, there's there's something protective and dignifying in, in the teaching of Jesus here, even while we find it challenging and, and humbling at the same time.
0: Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's why and one of the reasons pornography is so just awful and destructive is because you're objectifying God's image bearers in this, you know, and so it's, yeah. it's awful. It's commodifying,
1: it's commodifying people. It's simply turning us into meat.
0: Yeah and um you talk about the the purpose of marriage and, and our culture our culture is obsessed you know every movie every song is about this kind of romantic fulfillment and in terms of that's that's really the ultimate goal is romantic fulfillment but talk about how that's uh that's not the case
1: yeah and again there's 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 some truth to it but it, we've got the wrong end of the, of the very significant stick here um you know, to, to borrow Cameron crow language, there is we, we've got this sense that we want someone who's going to complete us, mm-hmm. um, and it feels like romantic fulfilment is is the way that's going to happen. Those those feelings come. It feels like wow, this this person is going to completely fulfil my life and make everything worth living and, and all the rest of it. Um, we've 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 latched onto something true, and then and then taken it in the wrong direction. The true thing we've latched onto is we are designed to be in a love relationship that will complete us and will fulfil us. Um, what we've done is we've we've then looked at <laughs> again we've mistaken the signpost for the reality. Um, it, I keep coming back to the fact that one of the one of the terms Jesus loves using to describe Himself is the bridegroom. Mm -hmm. um he he talks about himself as the son of man he talks about himself as as the christ as the redeemer but he also talks about himself as the bridegroom now that is so significant because jesus is getting there at one of the the themes that we see from cover to cover in the bible which is that, that god is the divine husband and so when jesus turns up and says hey the bridegroom is here he's he's dropping some big hints. This this is the love relationship we were created for. This is actually what our hearts are longing for, that what we often think is romantic longing, ultimately this is what it is looking for. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the best human marriages can be a wonderful picture of that, but they can't in themselves deliver the true longings of our hearts. Uh, they can only point to the place where those longings are going to be fulfilled. So... Not being very, you know, culturally sophisticated, I, I often liken it to that that scene in the first Zoolander movie where they, they, <laughs> they, you know, they they build this this little. They're going to build a school for Derek Zoolander in his name, and they show him the architect's model, and he walks in and he flips out and says, "This thing is far too small. It's is it a school for ants? It's got to be three times bigger than this." And the, the the goofy humor of the scene is that he's mistaken the model for the real thing, and we do that every time we think. Oh, this romantic relationship. This is going to be the one that means life is okay now. Mm-hmm. Life is complete now. Uh, we've we've looked at the model and mistaken it for the reality, um, and and meanwhile Jesus is waving at us, going, "Hey, the, the, I'm the bridegroom. I, I am the one your soul is actually designed to find its its deepest fulfillment in, and no other human relationship has the the weight bearing capacity to cope with carrying the entirety of another person's soul. Mm -hmm. We just, we can't do that. We can, we can cheerlead, we can encourage each other. We can do a vast amount for each other, but we can't do that. And no, even that the sort of most Hollywood-esque apocalyptic romantic relationship will never actually bear the weight of another person's soul. Only Christ can do that. We're, we're too big and too weighty to find that fulfillment in a, in a romantic relationship. Yeah.
0: And as as I talk about in my book that, you know, every, and I, I believe this with all my heart when I was living that life that, okay, this, this relationship didn't work out with this guy, but the next guy he's going to satisfy all of my needs, all he's going to fulfill me. I, he's, Literally, I I I I looked at a relationship. Uh, I looked at a, another guy as a savior, really, mm-hmm. and even though they kept not working out, I just I always had this optimism about it. Like, oh well, no, no, the next guy will be the one. The, he'll be the one that completes me. But um, yeah, it's like the
1: woman at the well in John four. She, you know, you've had five. You're on number six now, um, and and standing in front of her at that moment is number seven yeah and and seven is seven is the number of completion and it, it, it's jesus isn't it
0: oh i never thought of that wait did you just come up with that or is that like rt france or oh, something?
1: I, that's not original to me i'm, I'm <laughs> fairly sure of that but it's but it's one of the things i love about that narrative is she's she's obviously thinking one through you know the first five didn't work out but maybe number six is the one yeah and he's he's not even put a ring on her finger yet um but that, that's just the way that the human mind works. And, and with that, the same dynamic translates into other areas of life where you're looking for fulfillment. You're thinking, well, that job wasn't the job that fulfilled me, nor was the next one, nor was the next one. But this one might be the one that makes me finally feel complete and enough and all the rest of it. We, we, we always think the thing that hasn't satisfied hasn't satisfied because we must need more of it, mm-hmm. not because we're looking in the wrong place. And yeah, when so you, you go down salty water, thinking maybe the next gulp will quench my thirst.
0: Yeah, exactly. You talk, and you, yeah, you go, you get into the woman at the well and to in your book, and it really struck me because, you know, obviously what she was really thirsting for was this a relationship with Christ. Like that's what the ultimate thirst is. And it's funny because even now, you know, every once in a while there will be a moment where I'll be at the store or somewhere and I'll see someone and I'll be like, ooh, like, and there'll be this kind of like a little ping ding or whatever, ping of lust. And <clears throat> and um, and in that moment I just kind of stop myself and I'm like, okay, what am I really? And I pray about it. And I'm like, God, what am I? I'm really longing for intimacy intimacy with you. I'm not like that person is not that's not gonna satisfy me. I already know that. Like I've been through that. <laughs> We've already been through that whole program. And so I just, I, when that happens to me, I know that it's a false, it's kind of a false uh, feeling. Well, that's not a false feeling. It's a false, I don't know what the word is, but, um, but I know that ultimately that what I'm longing for is that intimacy with Christ
1: yeah,
0: and abiding yeah. in him.
1: Yeah. So oh, absolutely. I, I had someone the other day talking about how, you know, you, you can use your iPhone as a hammer. I mean, you physically can use it that way. It's not what it's designed for. But if, if the iPhone is not working well as a hammer, the application isn't get a better iPhone. <laughs> and maybe, maybe the next model will be the one that really smacks that nail in. The answer is maybe, maybe that's not what the iPhone was meant for in the first place. And if, if this succession of relationships is not, is not actually doing it for us, Maybe that's because that's not what this is meant to be about. Maybe that's not how this is meant to work. Um, yeah. Maybe the name needs a hammer, not a phone.
0: Yeah, you give in the book. You give the illustration of the car and the fire. I think as well that those are great illustrations.
1: Yeah, both both borrowed from friends, and I hope with attribution. But yes, um, no, absolutely. Um, yeah,
0: yeah, and so and then you you talk about. Um, This is, I think, this is my last. Yeah, this is my last question for you. But in in the book, you talk about um, love, and you know the mantra is "love is love." Is (laughs) the "love is love" mantra is is just there's so much wrong with it. But talk about what what is love? How do you define love, or how does the Bible define love?
1: Yeah, far more important how the Bible defines it than how Sam Mulberry defines it. Um, What I what I love is is that where we have our love is love hashtag, the Bible just gives us God is love. Um, Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that every feeling I call love, God must approve of, um, which I think is how a lot of progressive people take that verse, if they even come across it, is if God is love and what I'm feeling is love, therefore God can bless it and everyone else must do as well. No, what that verse means is God just knows way more about this stuff than we do. Uh, God knows far more about love than we do, and therefore, we need His wisdom to to teach us how to rightly love one another, um, how to do, how to direct our loves and order our loves in ways that are healthy. Um, and I was reading a verse in in 2 John yesterday um, that that again talks about how. We we love each other well when we walk in God's commands. Uh, we're never going to love someone better by being in disobedience before God. Yeah, and so I'm and never love someone more than when we're actually walking in God's ways with them. Um, so there's I think two two women at, at my church who had been a lesbian couple came to faith wonderfully a couple of years ago, walking deeply with the Lord and in, in repentance since then and are great friends now. And I said to them, you know, do you guys miss being romantically involved um, now that you're no no longer a a kind of couple in in that sense? I said, do you miss that? Um, And they said, they said, oh, we feel so much closer as sisters in Christ than we ever felt as lovers. Wow. And I just thought, well, there was a rebuke to me. They didn't mean it as a rebuke. It was a rebuke to me because I suddenly thought, yeah, of course, because God is love. He knows how to help us love each other in the in the right way and in the best way. in the In the world's eyes, Christianity downgraded their relationship. In their eyes, the gospel has given them a, a not. They've not gone from less love to more love. They've gone from a a worse kind of love to a better kind of love, mm-hmm. and therefore they're loving each other better as sisters in Christ than they ever did as lovers.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Because God is love. I, yeah, I like how you put that. That's that's really powerful. Um, and so, before we go, you, we, I mentioned at the beginning about your um, your most recent book, "What God Has to Say About Our Bodies," and I would love to have you come back and talk about that when I have when I've had a chance to read it. But can you just briefly give us sort of a synopsis of what that book is about?
1: Yeah, it, I'm basically trying to unpack how is Jesus good news for your body. So, and there's lots of ways. We, we see that our bodies have been fearfully and wonderfully made. That's, that's Psalm 139. That really is true. Um, it's it's one of those verses that we we see in calligraphy and stitched onto cushions and all kinds of stuff. But it, it means that, that what you see in the mirror in the morning, however we may feel about what we see in the mirror, has been fearfully and wonderfully made, and we can praise God because of it. Um Moreover, if if we're Christians, we're we're told in 1 Corinthians 6, our bodies now belong to Jesus. And that is liberating because it means if our bodies belong to Jesus, then the, the person our bodies most need to please is Jesus. And the body that's pleasing to Jesus doesn't have to be the body on the cover of a fitness magazine or the advertising billboard. It doesn't have to be the body that turns heads at a beach. The body that is pleasing to Jesus is the body that is consecrated to him, that is offered to him in his service. And then uh, I look at how the the gospel gives us eternal hope for our bodies because our eternal future with with God is not unphysical, it's, it's embodied. These bodies will be raised to new life and we will experience resurrection bodies in the age to come. And so... Has um, as one middle-aged man speaking to another middle-aged man, our, our, best, our best physical days are ahead of us, um, not behind us. I don't have to think of, I, mean, you know, I could do that in my 20s, I can't do that anymore in my 40s. Who cares? My, my best physical days are in the future. And so it doesn't matter if my embodied life in this age is not perfect or everything I wanted it to be or everything I dreamed it to be. Because it's not the only experience of bodily life I'm ever going to have. So, basically, Jesus is good news for our bodies because our bodies become defined by what He's done with His body for us on the cross.
0: Amen. Well, let's leave it at that. Thank you, and I, I hope you'll come back soon when I when I get a chance to read the book and we can get, go into detail about it. Uh, so, oh, I'd love to. So, okay, good. Well, thank you for for coming on. And guys just re- just remember no, guys the I'll just re- just reiterate the book's Is God Anti-Gay? I read this when it first came out. The uh, back in when did this come out?
1: 2013. Uh, that's yeah. that's a historical artifact now. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's uh but this is a great book cuz it, it's it's short and sweet, but it's really powerful. And why does God care about who I sleep with is really great, which we just talked about and why does God's uh, what does God have to say about what God has to say about our bodies, which we'll talk about on the next episode. Uh, so guys, I highly recommend getting these books and, uh, yeah, Sam, it's just such a pleasure to have you on. And I love what you do and your ministry and, and you live in, and just so people know you are in Nashville, Tennessee.
1: That's correct. Yes, based at Emmanuel Church in, in Nashville. And um, I'm very grateful to God for you, Beckett. Your, your book, A Change of Affection, I've told you this before, but um, is, is one of the best books out there. Um, and I, I've given that book away more times than I can count. Uh, oh, so thank I'm you. very <laughs> grateful for your ministry. I love what you do. Thank you for doing it.
0: Yeah, well, thank you for coming on, and um, we'll see you next time on on the show as soon as uh, we both can figure out a day.
1: Thank you. I'd love that.
0: All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com.
2: Have you ever considered yourself a messenger? I mean, you are called by God, and aren't we all praying the big prayer, here I am, Lord, send me... So if we put two and two together, you've got a message to deliver, my friend. Whether it's mics like this, bookshelves around the world, stages to take, art to make, or businesses to build, it's time we start testifying truth unashamedly, creatively, and in love. My name is Tamara Andress, the host of the Messenger Movement Podcast, which is designed to catalyze Christians to speak, write, build, and testify.